Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 226. We'll conclude the book of Ezra with a brief summary of chapters 8 through 10 and follow with some thoughts about abrupt endings. A lot of ground covered in this episode was discussed in the previous episode, so if it sounds a little familiar, now you know why. And sure, I could have waited until this episode to pour over these details, but it seemed like a better fit in episode 225. So, chapter 8 begins with a list of all the returnees who returned with Ezra 12 houses, including a family of Kohanim, as well as one tracing its roots all the way back to King David. This is not a coincidence, but before the big departure, there is a sudden realization that there are no Levites or Nitinim present to actually do the work necessary to maintain smooth functioning of the temple. Persuasive folks are dispatched, and 38 Levites, alongside 220 Nitinim, are enlisted to join in the return. The trip although important, is not without risk, and so the returnees fast and pray for a safe journey. Ezra, meanwhile, counts and weighs all the donations to the temple. The returnees arrive in Jerusalem safely. Monies are deposited in the appropriate temple vault, and near offerings are offered up. And, most importantly, they, quote, gave the king's orders to the king's governors and to the satraps of beyond the river, and they bolstered the people and the house of God. Chapter 9 begins with the breathless account of the noblemen of how all the Jewish men, and especially the priests and Levites, intermarry. Quote, The holy seed has mingled with the people of the lands, and the hand of the nobles and the officers was first in this betrayal. Ezra, as I recounted in the previous episode, crumples to the ground, desolate. He rends his garments, plucks hairs from his beard and head. He sits bereft until evening when he offers up a prayer to God to forgive the people's sinful unions, their past misdeeds, and accepts whatever punishment God will mete out. It seems that this prayer was not a private one, as chapter 10 recounts. The people heard Ezra's supplication and were, quote, bitterly weeping. At which point... Shechaniah ben Yechiel offers up the following proposal, quote, We have betrayed our God and brought back foreign wives, but now there is hope for Israel concerning this. And now let us seal a covenant with our God and send away all the wives and those born by them according to the counsel of the master and of those trembling for the command of our God. And let it be done according to the teaching. Arise, for the matter is for you to do, and we are with you. Be strong and act. Ezra accepts this proposal and galvanizes the leadership into action. The edict is disseminated throughout the land and the people are summoned to Jerusalem. Whoever does not come will face confiscation of their property and ostracism. When Ezra confronts the people with their grievous deed, they do not deny it, just the opposite. They proclaim that they will do what is demanded of them, except, quote, The people are many, and it is the rainy season, and there is no strength to stand outside, and the task is not for one day nor for years. For we have greatly trespassed in this matter. Let our nobles, pray, stand forth for all the assembly and for all who are in our towns who have brought back foreign wives. Let them come at set times, and with them the elders of each town and its judges, until the smoldering wrath of our God over this matter is turned back. In other words... Let's set up a committee to deal with this matter, which 
Ezra agrees to impanel, and the committee meets and discusses and considers for three months, and the text reproduces a complete list of all the offenders. And then... The Book of Ezra concludes with no mention of what happens next. Ezra's book does not even end with a whimper. It just ends. Just like that. episodes of Tanakhcast, we've talked about middle installments of trilogies in the context of pondering the end of the book of Exodus. We've talked about a taxonomy of endings as we considered the close of the Torah, but I don't think we've discussed the abrupt end. The end that just happens, an ending that begs to be interpreted and argued about endlessly because of its ambiguity. An ending that just fades to black and that's it. Yes, I'm talking about the series finale of The Sopranos. How to summarize the finale of a series which many serious TV critics regard alongside The Wire as one of the greatest shows ever to grace television? I'll leave that task to Wikipedia. Tony Soprano remains in hiding with his crew. He meets FBI agent Harris and gives him information about Ahmed and Muhammad in exchange for Phil's location. But Harris doesn't know anything. Tony visits his family in their safe house and later joins them at Bobby's funeral. Tony then visits Janice at her house, and she tells him she will raise Bobby's children, oblivious to how much they hate her. Later, Harris informs Tony that Phil has been using payphones from gas stations in Oyster Bay, Long Island, and Tony's crew begins surveilling the area. Phil calls Butchie from a payphone, expresses anger about his failure to kill Tony, and rejects Butchie's suggestion to make peace. He also darkly tells Butchie that he will face punishment for his ineffectiveness after Tony is dead. Tony meets with Butchie to negotiate without Phil's knowledge. Butchie refuses to disclose his boss's location, but agrees to a truce and allows Tony to order a hit on Phil. And they also agree to make restitution to Bobby's family. Shortly after, Tony and his family move back into their North Caldwell home. Meanwhile, Benny and Walden spot Phil and shoot him dead at a gas station. AJ tells his parents he intends to join the army, but they arrange for him to work for Little Carmine's film production company instead. Meadow and Patrick Parisi announce their engagement, and that Meadow may land a job at a law firm defending those oppressed by the government, particularly immigrants. Tony visits the comatose Silvio in the hospital. Carlo goes missing, and Polly fears he may have become an informant after his son. Jason Gervasi was arrested on a drug-related charge. Tony's lawyer, Neil Mink, tells Tony that Carlo is likely testifying and that Tony will be indicted. With Carlo gone, Tony offers the leadership of the April crew to Polly. Janice meets Junior in his care home to tell him of Bobby's death, but Junior's dementia leaves him too confused to understand. Uncle Pat tells Tony he believes Janice is scheming to claim Junior's remaining money for herself. Tony then visits Junior and tells him to give the money to Bobby's children, but realizes Junior does not recognize him. When Tony tries to remind Junior of his mafia life, Junior seems to have a moment of clarity where he remembers the mafia, but he indicates in hindsight he was unimpressed. Tony recognizes that the junior he loved and hated is entirely gone and sadly gets up and leaves. The Sopranos arrange to meet at a diner. Tony tells Carmela that Carlo will testify, while AJ reminds his father of his advice to, quote, remember the good times. Meadow arrives late, and as she enters, the bell rings. Tony looks up 
and the screen cuts to black. Because of the abrupt cut, followed by several seconds of silence, countless thousands of viewers initially thought that their cable cut out at a crucial moment. No! God, please, no! 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 In a 2021 interview with The Hollywood Reporter, David Chase, the production's creator, finally gave a clear-cut answer regarding Tony's fate. Quote, because the scene I had in mind was not that scene, nor did I think of cutting to black. I had a scene in which Tony comes back from a meeting in New York in his car. At the beginning of every show, he came from New York into New Jersey, and the last scene could be him coming from New Jersey back into New York for a meeting at which he was going to be killed. Yeah, but I, but I think I had this notion. I was driving on Ocean Park Boulevard near the airport, and I saw a little restaurant. It was kind of like a shack that served breakfast, and for some reason I thought Tony should get it in a place like that. Why? I don't know. That was like two years before. If you can picture that final scene, the close-up of James Gandolfini's face doesn't portend any fear or apprehension. The bell on the door rings and Tony just looks up. And if we stick to the timeline and continuity established by previous shots, it's Meadow who enters the diner. She's last seen in the third to final shot of the scene walking that way. But if you've seen any gangster films, there's the weight of that tradition pressing down on that moment. And even if you want to buck tradition, as David Chase did throughout the series, you still can't avoid the thought that whoever came through that diner door was there to kill Tony. And the music is continuous throughout. It flows, connecting each moment in a single sequence of time and space. So which is it? Did Tony live or get whacked in the fade to black? We'll never know, but it's fun to speculate. Just as we'll never know what happened to Ezra at the end of his eponymous book. As I mentioned in the previous episode and in this one, Ezra drops a bomb on the Jewish community. After summoning everyone to Jerusalem, he declares that all intermarriages and intermarried families are to be dissolved forthwith. The reaction is swift. Quote, and all the people sat in the square of the house of God shaking because of the matter and because of the rains. That's a curious addendum there, that the people would be shaking in what seems like fear makes sense. Many families were going to be torn apart by Ezra's draconian edict. But what does this have to do with the rains? Some commentators offer a simple observation. They were trembling because they were scared, but also because they were gathered outside and it was raining and they were cold. This could be one of those moments of pathetic fallacy where the weather reflects the mood of the people or the people's mood is heightened by the weather, but it's an evocative scene where everyone knows what's about to happen and it's going to be miserable for everyone. So let's just have that moment and try to get through it. And as I said, Ezra drops the bomb, quote, you have betrayed and brought back foreign wives to add to the guilt of Israel. And now confess to Adonai, God of your fathers, and do his will and keep yourselves apart from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. If it was me, I would have reacted rather differently to this edict. I would have protested, booed, something, but the crowd, wet and chilled, responds passively, quote, thus according to your words we must do. And it's curious exactly who's speaking here. But it seems that Ezra's comments were not as brief as the text lets on because respondent says, quote, it is the rainy season and there is no strength to stand outside. 
The speaker then continues, quote, The task is not for one day nor for years, for we have greatly trespassed in this manner, meaning we have all been intermarrying for generations, and it's not exactly clear who's who and what's what, and we might need some time to sort all this out. And with that, the story effectively ends. Did the proposed committee ever get impaneled? Yep, they got to work almost immediately and worked for two months. They investigate and trace family lineages, the Jewish community in the land of Israel. They even published a list of names of men who intermarried. But was anything actually done? Were marriages dissolved and families separated? Well, quote, They pledged to send away their wives and guilty to offer a ram from the flock for their guilt. But beyond that... And the book of Ezra ends just like that. The list of naughty Jews takes us through the final verses of the final chapter. It flows, knitting together chapter 10 in a single sequence of time and space. So which is it? Did Ezra live out his days in Judea? Did he get summoned back to Persia? Or did he get whacked in the diner in the fade to black? We'll never know. But it's fun to speculate. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Tell a friend about TanakhCast over coffee. Send another friend an email or text, nothing fancy. Help your aunt who just got her first smartphone to download a podcatcher and subscribe to TanakhCast. And if you have a spare moment after all that, write a brief glowing review at Apple Podcasts. Apparently, it helps people who might be interested in a little Bible learning vibe this podcast. And it's also a nice thing to do. If you want to help in an even bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast at Patreon.com and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for episode 227 when we begin the book of Nehemiah with chapters 1 through 3.